0: We have sung praises to God. We have prayed to Him in praise and in thanksgiving. Let us now go to Him again in prayer. Please bow with me. God, in many ways, that song that we just sang is a cry and is a prayer of our hearts that you would be magnified in us, that you would specifically be magnified in this body, South Canyon Baptist Church. Lord, we pray that in everything that we do in our music, in our prayers, in the preaching, in the way we do childcare, in the way we welcome, in the way that we serve donuts, in the way that we go to live class, in the way that we do youth group, in the way that we do children's ministry, in all things, Lord, we pray that Christ would be magnified. And Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would illuminate our eyes to see where we have not magnified you in our lives. Father, forgive us when we have placed ourselves above you. When we believe that you deserve more, excuse me, when we deserve more glory than you. Forgive us of that, Lord. God, let us not be taken captive by the sin that made our father and mother fall in the garden. God, help our hearts to be encaptured. Help our hearts to be in awe of your glory so that you may be magnified and that Christ may be seen in everything that we do. And God, we pray that particularly... Christ would be magnified in how we use the resources that you have blessed us with. God, we pray that we would be reminded as a people that every good thing that we have does not come from our own effort or from our own gain, but simply by your gracious hand. God, help us to remember that and to steward our resources and to think about how we should give and how we should take in light of every good thing coming from you and you alone. God, as we think about our family forum this evening, I pray that as we think about things like a budget and things like elder candidates and constitutional changes, Father, I pray that Christ would be magnified in that. Lord, that there would be a particular kind of unity and peace in our church and that you would allow that to carry over not just tonight, but in our member meeting as well as we vote on those things. Father, we thank you for how you have kept this church unified. Father, we realize that in this season of our church, there are so many things that could trip us up, and yet you have been gracious to hold us fast and not just hold us fast but to hold us fast together. So Father, I pray that we would remember that your hand is holding us and is guiding us in this time, and that ultimately, Lord, you would have Christ be magnified in how we walk through this season Father, we don 't just pray that Christ would be magnified in this church and this church alone, but we pray for other churches and uh, this area and in this community from time to time. And so, Father, I pray this morning for Redeeming Grace Church, our church plant. Father, we are thankful that even tonight, as we're meeting, they're going to be meeting as well for uh, their family meeting as well. God, we pray that Christ would be magnified in that. But more than that, Lord, we pray that Christ would be magnified as Josh Brown opens up your word this morning. Father, we pray that he would preach clearly, that Christ would be seen. if there would be anybody that does not know about who they are in light of who Christ is and what he has come to do in his life and in his death and his, his resurrection and ultimately in his glorification. Lord, we pray that they would know that and that they would place their faith in that this morning, that they would turn away from the life of magnifying themselves, but turn to the life of magnifying Jesus. God, we are so thankful for Pastor Josh, and we are thankful for his wife, Bree, as well. We thank you for how you sustained them for so long uh, in this time as a new church plant. Father, we pray that you would continue to grow their ministry, that Christ would be seen, and that Christ would be offered to those who don't know you yet. God, we pray for their children. We pray for Micah. We pray for Eli. We pray for Lydia. We pray that you would grow them in Christ. Father, we pray for their child, that they're getting ready to pick up, even within the next couple of weeks from Haiti. We pray that you would be with her. Father, we pray that as she's received by the Brown family, that she would notice and she would be aware of Christ's presence. And Lord, we pray that she would come to know the gospel as well. And Father, we are thankful as well that for the baby that you're knitting in Bree's womb right now as well. We pray that that baby would come to know you as well as it's raised up in that household. Father, we are so thankful for the Browns and we are thankful for the partnership and ministry that we have with them. And so, Father, we pray that we would be able to come alongside of them even more in the season where there will be many more needs, I'm sure. And, Father, we pray that you might be magnified as we love on them and as they love on their family. God, be with Redeeming Grace Church. Help them to magnify Christ in their ministry and in their preaching and in all that they do. God, we do from time to time here pray for different government officials in this prayer. And so, Father, I want to take some time this morning to pray for the judges within our county. Father, I pray for Jeffrey Viken and Danetta Woolman. Father, we pray that you would help them to judge and to make decisions that are for the good of the people of Rapid City and of Pennington County. God, we ask that you would help them to ultimately bear and to hold the responsibility of making judgments of what is right and what is wrong in light of what you believe to be what is right and what is wrong. And Father, whenever they don't make correct judgments, we pray that through conviction that you would bring them to a right decision. And Father, I pray that ultimately as well that these judges, even though they act in a role in some shadowy type of way in a role that ultimately you hold, we pray that they would remember that this office that they hold as judge for one, is temporary and two, that it is not given to them because of their own efforts, but because you've ordained that. So, Father, help them to exercise that authority of judgment in light of knowing that ultimate judgment is in your hands. God, help them to remember that as they make decisions. Not just this week, but throughout the many weeks to come. Guys, we turn back now to ourselves. We, again, pray that Christ would be magnified. That the preaching of the word would ultimately help us to see Jesus. And that in light of that, we, we would be like a reverberation out of this building that people might see Christ magnified in us because of your word being preached. Father, we pray for our brother Matt Whitman and ask that you would strengthen him, that you would help his hands and his heart and his head be clear on what the text is and ultimately, Lord, that he would help us to see Jesus this morning. Father, we thank you for him and we thank you for your son and all the things that he's given us and we thank you for the ability that you've given us to, in some small way, magnify him. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.
1: Well, good morning. Thanks for letting me hang out with you and uh, being so welcoming and allowing my family and friends to jump in as well. It's it's nice to connect with uh, a new church. So, uh, you know, I got all this... Goodwill, because somebody said real nice stuff about me. And then I'm going to see if I can ruin it right from the beginning. Because that just, you know, and we know we're human. There's a game that some people play. I don't play it anymore, but I used to really enjoy it when I did this. I had this whole circle of friends, and we we would play Airsoft together. Who is familiar with Airsoft? Okay, like a couple. That's pretty good. Okay, that's pretty good. It's effectively, you buy these little guns that shoot these little white plastic pellets. And then you go into the woods, and you just shoot pellets at your friends. And this is good. And somehow this makes you like each other better and it's fun and you do this voluntarily. It's not, it's not something I want to do as much as I do like um, adulthood and so forth. But When I was in my 20s, man, that was just a blast. It's, you know, it's like paintball. It's that kind of thing. And so you go out and you divide up into teams and there's some kind of objective and you need to go and take this hill or get that flag or whatever the nonsense is. And I remember I started playing this with people, and sometimes you play in in the daylight, sometimes you play when it's dark out, and when it's dark out, it changes your brain big time. You've got your stupid little Walmart $30 gun that spits these little pellets at people, it's not going to hurt anybody, but you're still just horrified of everyone else, because it's dark, and they've got their little Walmart toy gun that spits pellets, and it's going to hurt, and it just gets in your head a little bit, and there's this impulse that comes over you that you never would have imagined would affect you, to hunker down. There's this thing that says, well, I don't want to get shot by the thing. And so I'm going to go find like some little tree or bush or whatever. And I'm just going to hide in there until a few other people get it. And then maybe I'll sneak out real cautious like. But once you give into that impulse to shut it down and go into bunker mode, it's over. You just can't convince your brain to come back out. So we used to play this thing and I would definitely be one that would tend toward the, ah, I'm doing some strategic waiting. I'm strategically going to hide for a little while because I don't want to get hit. It's not because I'm afraid. just this is a strategy. It's a good idea. But there was this other guy we played with. He was fantastic, probably because he served two two, uh, tours as a Navy SEAL. So he was maybe a little more equipped for this kind of thing. He wasn't afraid of anything. Dude was like five foot 100 pounds on a lucky day, and he just didn't care. He figured out that the way to win at this thing was just wild aggression. Now, it was strategic, he knew what he was doing, he knew how to handle corners and operate everything, and it was just surgical to watch from my vantage point from inside that bush as he just went around and dominated everyone. And it challenged my thinking to be like, you know, maybe actually. There is some strategic benefit to not hiding in this bush and to stepping out in confidence and saying, no, nah, I got this thing, and I'm going to do this with precision and get things done. And, well, sometimes I feel like we find ourselves with the exact same conundrum in this moment in the history of the church, in this moment of, in the history of planet Earth. Never before, save maybe the earliest decades of the early church, Have we found ourselves in a situation in the Christian West where we look around and we say, man, the the Bush strategy might feel right right now. Like this doesn't feel like things are particularly hospitable to us out there, not like it did even 20, 30 years ago. It might be a good idea to just hunker down for a while and just kind of wait things out and keep an eye on stuff and just make sure we take care of our own a little bit. But this is not a new impulse because... Jesus came into a world in the first century where the tradition he was a part of, the the one that worships the one true God, there was a whole bunch of people there who were going through the same thing. It would seem, based on what we're gathering from the Gospels, that the hunker-down strategy was one that a lot of people were embracing in the first century. They felt like, ah, man, you know, we lost to the Babylonians and the Assyrians, And we lost to the Romans, and we lost to Alexander's generals. Not even actually Alexander, just his lackeys. Man, that's rough. And maybe the thing to do is to just lick our wounds for a little while. Turn inward upon ourselves. Yeah, there's all that stuff from our sacred texts that say that we're supposed to be a blessing to all the nations, and that all the nations will be blessed through the descendants of Abraham. But have you seen Rome? They're so big and mean, and they have these legions. And they control the economy and culture. And everywhere they go, they just put up temples. And all of their entertainment always wins. All of their businesses always win. Their judges aren't just. Their rules aren't always fair. It's unequally applied. They go around. They oppress people. And if you're the tall nail, they pound it down. They know the religious impulse at the time of Christ among many was appeasement, was go small, was hunker down. There'll be another time, a better time, for us to do the things and be the things that God said we were supposed to be through the covenants he made with Abraham and Moses and David, through the covenant that was promised through the Messiah who was to come. And so, whether we're talking about me playing airsoft, whether we're talking about the mentality of the vast majority of the religious leadership at the time of Christ, or I would dare say Whether we're talking about the American church right now, there has always been a temptation when things are difficult, when it feels like the tide is maybe pushing against who we are and what we are a little bit to want to shut it down, to want to go smaller, to go safe, to take care of what we already have and make sure we don't lose it in the interest of preserving a thing for some future opportunities we imagine might come down the road later. That's the mentality Jesus is speaking to in Matthew chapter 25. If you have a Bible and you could join me there, I'd be appreciative. Starting in verse 14, and as we're processing through things together, we'll work work our way all the way up to verse 30. Jesus is speaking in a series of thoughts that have been developing for quite a while by the time we get to chapter 25. And in order to understand what he's saying here and who he's saying it to, and how he's saying it so that we don't just get a 30-minute opinion fest from me. (laughs) 30 minutes, that's adorable. The amount of time that we talk opinion fest from me, let's just quickly do the rundown on what's been happening in Matthew. The Jewish people, they're awash. They keep getting conquered by everybody. They've heard rumors they're supposed to be a Messiah. God is supposed to use them to be a blessing to all the nations, but they don't know how that's going to work out. Different factions emerge who all have different opinions about how to do it. Some people want to take up arms and kill the oppressors. Others want to to cooperate. Others want to bunker up and go small and wait until a better opportunity. Jesus shows up. He ticks all the boxes that the Messiah was supposed to tick. Born in the right place, from the right people, from the right line. Then he starts doing stuff and saying stuff in the early going of Matthew. And all of that sounds really Messiah-ish. And Matthew goes out of his way to be like, yeah, and thus was fulfilled what was written by the prophet long ago. And you look at it and you're like, yeah, well, yeah, yes, that certainly does fulfill it. Well, in the same way that we look at the first third of the book of Matthew and say, he looks like the Messiah, so a whole lot of people in the first century who've been looking out for a Messiah look at that stuff, and they can't even bring themselves to say it out loud, but they're coming to the same conclusion. He looks like he's the Messiah. But this, it's almost... We've been bunkered up for so long at that point that it's almost blasphemy to imagine that God would even do the thing that God said he was going to do. And so people are very, very cautious about what they say regarding Christ. And it's not until all the way into chapter 16 that somebody other than a demon, a demon gets it right early on. But other than a demon, that's the first time that a human looks at it and is like, you know what, I'll take a swing at this thing. I think you're Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. And Peter affirms that that correct, or that Jesus affirms that that correct confession that Peter made isn't even from him, but that God opened his eyes to see that. So we see this ball that's starting to roll downhill. That everything looks like Christ is the Messiah as we work our way through Matthew. All of his teaching has authority. Not like the bunkered up, hide-in-the-bush teachers of the law. They didn't have authority when they spoke. But we get to the end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7. What's the takeaway line from this great opening speech of Jesus? Everybody was in awe because he spoke as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. There's something different going on with Christ. Well, folks start to get a, a sense of this and some start to feel threatened. And as a result, Jesus' speech and language changes a little bit. He starts to speak in parables. And by the time we get to chapter 13, we see a dramatic shift in Jesus' teachings where he had been going right through the front door. Here is how the kingdom of God is. This is how the things are. These are the values of the kingdom. And he's giving overt, direct theological teaching. In chapter 13, we see a little pivot. He starts to use parables. Ah, You remember chapter 13, even if you don't remember it off the top of your head. This is the one that has the parable of the sower who goes out and scatters the seed. And all of those parables, the one about the little mustard seed that grows up to be big, the one about the bad guys who come and try to ruin the master's field by throwing bad seeds in there that look like the good seeds, all of these parables, or almost all of them, start with, the kingdom of heaven is like. So by the time we get to the end of chapter 13, we got a pretty good sense of what Jesus is doing. He's coming and living the life of the Messiah. He is the fulfillment of all of the promises of the Old Testament. All of the law and the prophets are summed up in him, and he's living in such a way that this is abundantly evident. The second thing he's doing is he's saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's picking up the message of his cousin John the Baptist and saying the exact same thing. He's explaining what the kingdom is going to be like. What he's doing is is flipping over everything that people understood to be reality about God, about religion, about the Messiah, about them, about where they fit and what they ought to be doing with it. You see, the mentality of the day was more or less one of two things. We need to kill everybody we disagree with, and in doing so, the people who will be left will be the ones who believe the right things. And in doing so, God's word will reach everyone. And the other strategy was that bunker up thing. So we got a, we got a problem then because Jesus is saying neither of those things. He's not messiahing the way they wanted messiah to happen. He's pushing the ball in a different direction toward a kingdom that has different values, toward an agenda that certainly is not passive, certainly is not hiding, one that is active, one that walks right into the teeth of the problem, one that says love your enemies, serve your enemies, turn the other cheek, it's a completely different set of values and currency that he's articulating. And as he does all of this, there are two motifs that I think get rounded out in the passage we're looking at today. Motif number one is this motif of masters and servants. There's a lot of parables. Like if I were to just to, to quiz those of you who went to a wanna or did Bible school or whatever, and I was like, yeah, hey, what's the one parable that Jesus did again about the, the master and the servants? Well, there are like ten right answers, right? Because he kept using this kind of example. I, you, you got the one with the, uh, the wheat and the tares that we referenced earlier. You've got the unmerciful servant where the master forgives a big debt and then the other guy's like, yeah, I'm not going to forgive a small debt. And then the master's real mad that the guy wouldn't forgive the small debt. You've got the workers in the vineyard where the master decides he's going to pay everybody he hired regardless of what hour they came to work the same wages You've got the parable of the two sons that happens just a few chapters before what we're looking at today where the two kids get told to go work in the field and the one's like, "Ah, I'm not going to do that. And then he does. The other one's like, oh, yeah, I'll definitely do that. And then he doesn't. You've got the parable of the tenants where the master buys this vineyard and gets everything put together and then rents it out to some people, expects a return on his investment. But instead they kill everybody who comes to collect The master's return on the investment, and eventually he sends his own son, and they kill him too. You got the parable of the wedding banquet in chapter 21, where the master says, oh, we're going to have this gigantic wedding party. It's going to be great. And then the people who said they would come, they don't show up. And he's like, all right, I'm going to send my servants out. Just go get whoever. Uh, The highways and the byways, just go find whomever. We're going to have a party. We're going to celebrate this. This is going to happen. And now you get chapter 25, another master and servant's parable. The other motif that's going to get paid off here in chapter 25 is the one about coins, riches, and treasure. I've already talked about one of the places where Jesus mentions this. Again, it's in Matthew 13, when he's talking about the kingdom of heaven is like, and he talks about a treasure that's buried in a field. Do you remember this one? I heard a grunt. That means somebody remembers this one. Good. Yeah, it's a little micro parable. It's tiny, but this is just the one where somebody figures out that there's this treasure of surpassing value that's Buried out in a field somewhere, and he's like, I'm just going to shrewdly go and buy the field. then nobody can get mad at me for digging up the treasure. And he cashes out everything he's got because he figures out this is the most valuable thing of all the things. And then he goes and he does it. Well, then coins and treasure comes up again just a bit earlier, right after the triumphal entry, when Jesus is milling around the temple and some religious leaders come up. And they're like, hey, you know, this is an important question for us. And we just really want your opinion and totally care what it is. Should we pay taxes to Caesar? And Jesus, as you recall, flips that on its head as well and effectively says, you yeah, know, those coins got Caesar's face on it, whatever, fine, give it to him. But whose image is on you? Well, then give that to God. I don't think Matthew chapter 25 and the parable we're looking at today makes as much sense if we don't acknowledge that all of this conversation has been going on. We've been talking about masters and servants. We've been talking about riches, wealth, and coins. And we've been talking about Jesus' absolute stout pushback on the religious leader's plan, strategy, to hunker down, go into the bush, and hide and wait for things to change. That's why they've been on a collision course this whole time. So then we get to chapter 25. Jesus just spent two chapters denouncing the religious leaders, their plan, their strategy. He has laid it bare in front of everyone. That speech... Is probably the thing that ultimately politically sealed his fate in a political sense, though his crucifixion was the will of God from the very beginning. And with that in mind, we get to this parable in Matthew 25, 14. It says, again, it'll be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his property to them. Now, that again is a reference back to 25, 1, where it says, at that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins. So it's, this is another kingdom parable you can effectively just plug in. In fact, I think some modern translations even just take the liberty of plugging in the kingdom of heaven is like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his property to them. All right, nothing confusing here. If someone in the ancient Near East, in the first century AD, had a bunch of resources and they were going to be traveling for an extended period of time, I suppose they had a few options as to what they could do with it. One, they could put it in a bank. Yes, they had those in the first century. Roman banking... Uh, was extensive. There was a whole network. You could write uh, effectively a check to deposit money on one end of the empire and pull it out on the other end of the empire. Currency exchanges were a thing. Jesus just got done wrecking one of those a few chapters earlier right here. And so banking was an option. You could put it there. Most of those banks were just happened to also be Roman temples to pagan gods and goddesses. So the original audience and if they're assuming that Jesus is talking about a Jewish master, yeah, they would have known from the get-go, well, you're probably not going to put it in a bank, because to do so is to acknowledge that this false pagan deity is partly being given uh, trust or protection over your money. So that wouldn't make sense. Option number two is one that we're going to read about a little bit later in the parable somebody exercises it, is just find a hole and put all your money in there. It's the the economic equivalent of hiding in the bush. You just put all the money in the hole and then you, what you're going to do is you're going to take the dirt and you're going to cover that back over and maybe throw some leaves on there and then try to remember where it is and then later you can come back to it and you can get it. I feel like I'm over explaining the bury it strategy. It seemed like you were really with me on that one. So moving on, the the third option would be have somebody guard it. And I suppose the fourth option would be have somebody invest it. If I'm not going to be around my money anyway, and I can't spend it because I'm traveling, I want to see if they could take the money and make it into more money later on. So that's what he does. He entrusts his property to these servants. To one, he gave five talents of money. To another, two talents. And to another, one talent, each according to his ability. This structure is going to repeat throughout. There's a lot of Hebraism here that would be fun to look deeper at, but we're not going to. You will notice five-talent guy, two-talent guy, one-talent guy. Five-talent guy, two-talent guy, one-talent guy. That's the entire structure of the whole thing. We're going to repeat this at increasing lengths of detail as we run through each portion. It's also interesting to note that unapologetically, the text says, each according to his ability. That is not how we think right now. I am not prepared to make negative commentary on the world and where we're at at this moment in terms of equality of outcome, equality of opportunity, and a lot of those debates that are going on in society right now, I think any rational person in the world can line up a bunch of people and say, oh, well, you're the best at that thing, you're the best at that thing, you're great at that thing, and we all know that people are good at certain things and not as good at other things, and I think that's okay and needn't be a point of threat. That said, sometimes you get to this passage, and I've observed an adverse reaction from some. Like, well, that doesn't seem fair, Or godly or nice, that he wouldn't just give everybody the exact same amount. But I don't know, like, let's say you had three people who worked for you, and one of them was really, really good at turning a dollar into five, and one of them was really, really good at turning a dollar into a nickel. Who are you going to give most of your money to to have them invest on your behalf? At some point, the rubber meets the road, and the honest person, I think, looks at this passage and is like, huh, that master. He likes things that earn more and is not as fond of things that earn less. Oh, we have something in common. So he gives him a whole bunch of money and goes on his journey. The man who received the five talents went at once and put his money to work and gained five more. Nice job. So also the one with two talents gained two more. Also nice job. But the man who had received the one talent went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. Now before we get on this guy too much embracing my hide-in-the-bush airsoft strategy. We've got a ton of contemporary documentation from outside the Bible that says this was a completely socially normative practice. This was a thing people did. No one would have looked upon this and been like, what? You idiot. That's so dumb. You should go and get interest. No, as I mentioned earlier, like you could go and get interest. But if you invested with a banker in the Roman banking system, it was kind of a little bit of a pinch of incense to that local pagan god, just a little bit. And so some people in the original audience would have had serious reservations about that little bit of interest. They would have viewed that as kind of pagan blood money, and they would have felt that, no, burying it was better. And again, we have lots of extra biblical corroboration on that. So for us, like, we've we've heard the parable. We know the punchline. We know where it goes. We're tempted already to be like, you scoundrel idiot how can you not get it but i think the original audience at this point would be like oh it's cool those first two people took risks but i mean the third person did a thing that normal people would do too before we go any further though let's let's just get a little bit of perspective here on what we're actually talking about money wise because i can think of youth group sermons where to make it simple we did boil it down to like 5 bucks two bucks and a buck. I remember being at camp and they got out a five dollar bill and this guy got that much. But it's not really an accurate description of the level of investment here. If we go five bucks, two bucks, one buck and somebody couldn't figure out how to turn one buck into another buck, like it takes money to make money. I think we're kind of missing the point of the passage because you might say, well, that guy didn't have any chance. Hey, you're going to go and turn one dollar into two dollars. You can't even get going with that. Now what we're talking about here when we say talents is a, a hoard of coins, a massive amount of Roman coinage. This is Roman coinage. This is uh, probably late third through mid fourth century later Roman coinage. You can see it's still got a little bit of the silver wash on the outside. Roman coins used to be silver through and through as they were at the time we're talking about here, but (laughs) we could have a fun conversation about currency debasement and things like that. By the time we get to this coin, it's cheap. So, um, Yeah, if you give me this one back at the end, that's cool. But if not, it's not worth much. So we're going to be okay. Seriously, check that out. That gives you an idea of what we're talking about. However, Rocky, could you help me out for a minute? Could you just grab those 35-pounders one at a time? This is my friend Rocky. He's stout and can handle this. And that's why I picked on him and not the rest of you. Okay, now for you, this is light because you're Rocky. But for the rest of us, that's a lot. I I could... I could drop this on something so you could hear the sound, but I don't want to break your stuff because your church is nice. This is a beast. You want to help me out with this? Like, can we vouch? It's heavy. Thank you. It's 35 pounds, and a talent of silver is two of these fellows. Let's just set them right here. Let's That's a lot. Thank you, Rocky. So I don't know. If you go and buy weights, what are you doing right now? A buck twenty-five a pound, a buck fifty a pound, maybe something like that. So that's not that big a deal. I mean, it doesn't cost that much to do that. But in silver, like, who does the coin thing a little bit? Who keeps track? of What's silver worth right now? I hear twenty-five. That sounded like an auctioneer. I didn't mean to. It's about about twenty-five. Yeah, it's 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 bouncing back and forth around twenty-five. Gold, I think, is just a tick under nineteen hundred right now, and and that's per ounce. So a talent, there are a few different versions of talents around the ancient Near East. It's possible that the talent we're describing here is actually about 130 pounds. But we're going to go conservative. A talent is 70 pounds. So the guy who got the least got a hoard probably of silver, maybe gold. I think the best read on the text is silver, of that much weight in pure 9999 silver. Are you kidding me? You can find a way to make money with that. They, there, there really should be a way. And so, what that also means is that the other two guys got even more than that. This would be the equivalent right now if we go with American value uh, USD. It'd be thirty some thousand dollars right now. He's doing the math on his phone. I love it. Well done. <laughs> You're adding up how much that'd be worth. <laughs> I did the same thing last night. I like you. So. So you're getting you're getting 30 plus grand right there, if you're the least talented person. What an investment by the master! If you're the second least talented person, you're only about seventy two thousand bucks. Is what I figured up. If you're the guy who got five, you got 180 thousand invested, and that is if we assume silver. Now the gold to silver ratio was tighter than it is now. There'd been a huge influx of gold into the empire because of conquest. So whereas now it's like a 70-to-1 ratio, gold-to-silver value, it was like a 10-to-1 ratio then. But still, if it was gold, that's $1.8 This is crazy money that was vested in these three guys. Now this master was smart enough to earn that kind of money. Do you think he had a pretty good sense of who these guys were before he did that? He had a good enough sense to know that he was giving it each according to their ability. I think he had a, a pretty sneaking suspicion that that first 36 grand was going to end up in a hole in the ground. He did it anyway. We'll talk more about what that says about the master in just a minute. This is serious money. These guys were given the opportunity to do something dramatic with it. There are only two pages. I just turned one, so I think we're in good shape here. So what happens next? After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. This, again, keeps with the traveling master motif. We've seen this in other places as well. And maybe prior to chapters 22, 23, 24, maybe this traveling master motif was like, oh, okay, that just fits with the story. But these previous chapters have been all about how time is going to unfold and what God is going to do over time. So now people come back to that motif all of a sudden here in chapter 25, and they're like, oh, in all of his stories, the master is gone for a while. Interesting. That apparently factors in. Put a pin in that. We're coming back to it. The man who had received the five talents brought the other five. like In a cart, I guess? Because I could maybe handle one more of those like this. But, I mean, dude's bringing ten. So so 20 of these he rolls up with in 9999 silver. Are you kidding me? I <laughs> You're the master. How could you have hoped for much better than that? That's incredible. I mean, what did this guy go out and do? He didn't have Coinbase. Like he couldn't just go and speculate on Bitcoin and hope that it would pop this afternoon and be like, "Ah, oh, sell, sell, sell. Look, I made money." He didn't have the ability to just goof around on the stock market on his phone while he's, you know, casually just lounging around watching a football game with the other eye. Like, he had work. This dude had to go out and evaluate other people's Capabilities and investments, and look at what they were doing. He had to understand a market. He had to be crazy savvy about the moment in time that he was in. He had to be savvy about the market. What is the market? It's minds. He had to understand what people were thinking. He had to understand the little invisible ebb and flow of what people wanted, what people found to be valuable. He had to understand culture. He had to read people to make a discerning decision about what to do with somebody else's investment to flip that around and make something with it. And he succeeded. Nice job. Let's see what the result of all of this is. So uh, I've gained five more, and his master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things, I'll put you in charge of many things. Come and share in my happiness. That's the reward. You get to do more work now and come and celebrate with me this victory that we now get to share together. Could have just been the master's victory. He clearly knows how to do this himself. But instead, he invited somebody else to participate in it. Well, why? Well, I don't know. Like wanted to give him a crack at growth. Wanted to, wanted to see if there was something he could do. If, if given raw materials to turn it into something better, we're going to come back to that thought as well. But the reward is, Do more work, take more responsibility, play a bigger role in this kingdom in this thing that I'm building, and enjoy it. Come and share in my happiness. And what do you think that guy looked like walking back into the house? I mean, maybe he's headed toward the the banquet that is at the end of all things that we see alluded to throughout Matthew, to share in this joy, to share in the riches of the master. I'm sure he's elated. Well, two-talent guy. He gets the same response. The man with the two talents also came. Master, he said, you entrust me with two talents. See, I gained two more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Come and share in the master's happiness. It's the exact same thing. Just control C, control V. It's the same verse. It's the same thing. Go and dig around in the original Greek. same thing. Same answer. That's awesome. Why is it the same answer? Well, probably some scribes. No, 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 no. It's the same answer because that's the way Jesus told the parable exactly. Because it being the same answer is vital to interpreting the parable properly. It doesn't matter if you got handed 20 of these things or 10 of these things or one of these things or one of those little adorable jazzer size one-pounders that are all wrapped in the foamy stuff. It doesn't matter what you got handed. If you did something with it that was productive, that was not hide in the bush, that was go take a swing at this thing, get the values of the kingdom, get the character of the king, and go take this beautiful stuff that is reflective of the character and the mindset of the master and give it away and make it awesomer, you get it. Come share. Come celebrate. Same exact blessing. Same exact words. Whether you are the rock star or whether you are the more normal person, whatever. Verse 23. Excuse me, 24. Then the man who had received the one talent said, okay, master, I knew that you are a hard man harvesting where you've not sown and gathering where you've not scattered seed. So, I think understandably, I was afraid and went out and hid your talent in the ground. But see, it, it's, all, it's all here. See, here's what belongs to you. You know that sound that it would make on Price is Right when you get something wrong? I feel like it's maybe that with like the slow, sad, slide trombone at the end. It's, doesn't it just feel gross so let me just recap I gave you that much silver and carte blanche to go make something happen you clearly understood what the commissioning was here but my character was the thing that made it so you couldn't be productive with 70 pounds of 9999 silver it it wasn't you servant it was me because of my shrewdness and because of how i am okay it kind of sounds like the garden doesn't it you you put this woman here with me that's that's a reflection on your character and your judgment how could i be expected to do anything else we're blaming the master but the everything we've seen about the character of the master is so good and so at first you come across this and you're like, oh, gross, he didn't get any money. Money's good. I wish he got more money. It would have been better to have more money. But you look a little bit closer and you're like, nah, really the grossness here is the rationale behind it. That he disparages the character of this wonderful master. His master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown, and that I apparently, apparently is mine, gather where I have not scattered seed. Hmm. Well, then you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I'd at least have I've received it back with interest. He plays along. There's a scene in a show, and I'm not going to tell you which one because I don't want to spoil it for you and because I don't want to appall you, but it's a good show. It ran during the 2000s, and there's this there's a showdown in the garage between two family members, and one of them has finally figured out that this other family member is dangerous, into some stuff he shouldn't be into, and they finally have this long-awaited confrontation. And the one who's actually guilty and dangerous is playing it off like, "No, no, no, like right hand, no, I'm not, mm, 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 nope, couldn't, nope, that's not me." And then the one who's figuring out the evil that the other one is doing kind of issues a bit of a threat, and the demeanor completely changes on Brian Cranston's face. And he gets real close. And he's like, if I am who you say I am, you would be advised to tread lightly. Oh, oh it's just unbelievable television. So powerful. Just two guys talking in a garage. I kind of get that vibe here. So if I am who you say I am, shrewd, ruthless, dirty in my business dealings. Why did you play it this way? What the master is doing here is he's flipping it right back around with a healthy degree of sarcasm and doing a little bit of, okay, let's just for the sake of argument play along and let's say that's true. Why wouldn't you have done this? What he's saying is you're a liar. That's not why you did it. You did it because you are, let me see, I think he gave us the reason. Oh, yeah, wicked and lazy. That's why you did it. You're, You're wicked because of your nonsense accusation and your unwillingness to own your own bush strategy, and you're lazy because you didn't want to do anything. That's why you didn't get a return, not because of my character. This guy was given everything he needed to succeed, and he didn't. Passages like this are scary. I don't want to revel in it, because at times I feel much more affinity with the blamey, finger-pointing, ineffective, inefficient servant than I do with the other two. So do not mistake the way I am trying to relay the passage for me imagining that I don't feel affinity with this guy. It's scary because we do. Verse 28, take the talent from him and give it to the one who has 10. For everyone who has will be given more and he will have an abundance. Whoever doesn't have even what he has will be taken from him and throw that worthless servant out into the darkness where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's another rounding out of a motif we've seen throughout Matthew, this idea that those who don't get the kingdom, don't get the values of the master of the kingdom, the king himself. Uh, they, they end up in this weeping and gnashing of teeth place. So what do we do with a passage like this? I, I just talked about one of the things that I think is tempting to do with it is to be like, man, well, thank goodness I'm not like that bad person. And in doing so, we sound like the hypothetical characters in Matthew 6 when Jesus is talking about prayer. Oh, I'm so glad I'm not like those bad people. Thank you, God, that you haven't made me this way or that way. Uh, no, I don't think that's the right response. I think the first place to start with a passage like this, as we think about where we fit into it, is, look, it's a cautionary parable. It's not a proactive, positive action parable. It's cautionary. The, the bulk of the verbiage, the bulk, the large percentage of what we get here is the warning. So we're supposed to feel, I think, warned by it. But we're also supposed to feel invited into something beautiful. Both of those pressures should sit with us when we read a passage like this. Well, what do we learn about God from the parable of the talents? Well, he invites his servants to use and multiply the riches of his kingdom. That sounds like church language, but think about that. Think about stuff that you're really good at and how hard it can be to try to invite other people to... Do the thing you're really good at. That's tough. It takes tremendous character, more than I've got, to invite somebody in and set them up to truly succeed with a thing. That's difficult. It takes tremendous leadership and security in oneself that I I think I often lack, but this king doesn't. He's got it in abundance. I'm glad to see that coin is still making the rounds. Excellent. Further, though, he invests in people. He could have gone and made this money himself. This investment was a chance for these people to learn how to do it. It was a chance for his servants to learn how to imitate the capabilities and characteristics and values of the king, of the master. To duplicate that and be able to go out and do it themselves. So he's investing not just to make more riches, more glory for himself. He's investing to duplicate the values of himself. And further, we see that he invests trust in ways the world doesn't and probably shouldn't. But this king, who is God, has unlimited resources, unlimited ability to provide, and so why shouldn't he be wildly generous? Why shouldn't he put this tremendous amount of trust in people, even people who are broken and might not do the right thing with it? As the God of grace and provision He assumes the risk of inviting flawed people into his project. Why? Well, that gets us to the second important question we have to ask about any passage we look at. Number one is, what does it show us about who God is? Question number two, and it always has to be in this order, is what do we learn about God's plan? Well, what we learn about God's plan here is that the increase of his glory and riches is what he's going for. And it makes sense that the expansion of his kingdom, if it is the truest, realist thing with the truest values ever, and it is a reflection of the character of the one true God who made all things, we should want more of that. Now, if I go to expand my kingdom, because I somehow think that I am the best thing, and everyone should have my values, that's hubris. It's dangerous, and I should be knocked down a peg or two or ten. If God does it, who's right about everything, that's good, because it is the truest, realist thing. The plan isn't just to expand his kingdom, though. The plan is to include his children. He's making a new family of faith. That's a clear theme throughout the book of Matthew. And if you're a follower of Christ, if you've bent the knee to that king, you are in that new family of faith. You are an heir, and you are an agent. Not an heir and just an heir. Not an agent and just an agent. But like these servants, you have ownership of this kingdom. You are adopted into this family of faith, a son, a daughter of the king. But also, we do stuff. You're an active son or daughter of the king, a prince, a princess who goes on campaign, not one who sits at court. So what are the implications for us? And here's the home stretch. Because we are heirs and agents of the kingdom, who share in his happiness, there is an activeness. There is an agency. There is a go get itness that makes sense. To go all the way back to the thing we talked about at the beginning, the hunker-down thing, it, it doesn't work. It's not reflective of what Christ has commissioned us to do. The thing that my buddy did, which is go out and take risks, That made a lot more sense. Let's be honest about where we're at for just a second. I alluded to this in the early going of our conversation. There are a lot of people in this room, and you don't have to be very old to remember, who can remember when all the commercials you would see on a Sunday watching football, when all of the little take-home lessons at the end of the trite family movie that you went and watched in theaters, when all of the decorations at the stores and all the corporations and all the messaging everywhere was generically, vaguely, gospel, Christian-ish, friendly. Your biggest discouragement would be like, ah, that's kind of a soft version of who God is in your Christmas advertisement there that thanks heaven for baby Jesus, but you just didn't say it hard enough. You can remember what it was like when it was like that. Now we live in a time where I, I watched Shazam with the kids the other day, and they had a vague prayer to a nebulous God at one point in the movie, and I was like, what? What? that's the most beautiful prayer I've ever heard in my whole life. Did you see that? That was like almost religion. The movie acknowledged that we live in a world where religion is a thing. Like, God didn't really come up or anything, but it, like, that's what we're reduced to. The world feels so weird and different and backwards, and it feels like things that are up or down, and like Orwell predicted everything correctly. And here's the effect I'm having, seeing that have on churches. As I go around, and I do things like this, as I I'm a citizen of the internet and see what's going on there. As I watch people's faith fall apart and fall apart very publicly, people who work in the same field that I work in, in the same sphere that I work work in, this is what I see, despair. There was something hollow about the way we were doing it. Sure, okay, I get that. But there is tremendous pressure. And the reaction that I am overwhelmingly seeing is anger and shutdown. And that can't be our reaction. It's not in keeping with what this text says. It's not in keeping with the rest of what Jesus says. This, if we are to follow Christ's example and what the Word of God says about what the church is and what it does in society, this is when we go on the offensive. And our temptation right now is to take that tremendous investment that we have been given and put it in the ground and bicker amongst ourselves about very small tertiary theological issues, hunker down into little enclaves of our preferred tribes, and see if we can burn down the other ones to make sure that when all the ashes are burned down to nothing and all the smoke clears, we're the one true version of Christianity left, and then we can sit upon the throne of ashes of everyone else, and if anyone wants Christianity, they'll need to come through us. It's a terrible strategy, a terrible strategy. I'm not accusing you of that. I am empathetically observing that this seems to be where we are. And if we don't admit it and pivot now, we're burying the coin. we're, We're doing the exact thing that is the exact cautionary example of what not to do. We need to engage. We need to understand that the word of the Lord doesn't return void. We need to understand that the gospel is the power of salvation. We need to understand this wins I know the TV commercials get old, and I know the tweets are frustrating, and it seems like stupid ideas and destructive evil things are going to win. It doesn't, right? This wins. The victory is already sealed. It's already done. I'll tell you what's in question. How effective is the bride of Christ going to be in the meantime? What are we going to do? What return are we going to go get on this investment? How changed by the gospel are we that that we would be motivated to go out and reach people who are our enemies right now in the same way that Christ reached out to us while we were still enemies of the cross. We have to give away what we've been given at a rate and with a fervor and with an energy that we have never experienced in our lifetimes. Now is not the time to shut it down. Now is the time to go and knock on your neighbor's door and figure out what their name is. Now is the time to figure out those people you work with, those people you go to school with who you alone are positioned rightly with the gospel to communicate with, to talk with, to nurture, to show care for. Now is the time to minister to each other's needs. Now is the time to cut slack to people who we think might be wrong about a theological issue here or there and figure out where we agree on the beauty and the reality of Christ and his work on the cross and find a way to partner and to show to the world that we are unified behind this king, that we are dedicated to getting a return on this beautiful investment that God has made in us. We should be doing that as individuals, as people who go around thinking, how do I get a return today? What do I do with these beautiful values and this beautiful currency God has entrusted me with to give Him back more, to return to Him more glory than He poured out in my direction in the first place? And we got to be doing that as churches. I love, before I even met you, what you guys have done on that front—it made no sense for you to plant a church like just down the street. It's right there. It's just—it's right. You can almost see the building from here if you stood in the right place. It doesn't—that's not going to help your institution, at least on paper. thats, that's it costs you money. It costs you a really good staff person. It costs you some super talented people who are over there helping make that thing go. Now, why did you do that? You did that. Because you were told to. You did that because there was some impulse here that said, now is not the time to hide in the bush and shut it down because we feel pressure and it feels like people don't like us as much anymore. Now is the time to go get it because we have the power of the gospel. And so you took a big swing on that. Nice job. I want to bottle that up and give it to every church I get the opportunity to talk with. That's awesome. Which makes this next thing maybe sound a little bit greedy, but do it more. Think of the next thing. What's the next plan? How are you going to crack the nut? How are you going to reach Rapid City, South Dakota? How are you going to figure out how to speak into a culture that doesn't like us that much right now? How are you going to figure out how to position yourself as an individual and as a church to get the return on the investment that the Master says you can get? I think we... Do not live in the moment in the history of the church that comes with the most difficulty and the most challenge and the most cause for us to hang our heads in sorrow and disappointment. Well, woes woe is me that I am here and not 50 years ago in the age of Billy Graham. You are blessed to be here. You are blessed to have this opportunity. Chin up, eyes up, Christians. We are equipped with the power and the authority of the gospel and everything that is broken about the world is addressed in Christ and addressed in the values of his kingdom. The only thing that is standing between them seeing that and the state that the world is in right now is us figuring out how to say it. We have said it at them for a long time with the same set of words and the same posture. I think we just need to slightly reevaluate that and consider who we're talking to and do so as an act of service and gentleness toward the people who we would like to see this beauty, who we would like to better understand the reality of what Christ has done. That's a whole lot to think about. I have no idea what the time limit is on a sermon here, but I'm pretty sure I just ruined it and blew it. Thank you so much for for what you have done and the role that you've played in this kingdom. Thank you so much for the role that you're going to play next. And I hope that you will join me in feeling encouraged and optimistic about the opportunities that are in front of us that the generations before us did not have in front of them. We have a chance to see that kind of return and to share in the master's happiness, and we should. Would you pray with me? God, thank you that you invest in us. We I, we don't deserve it. it. You could do all this yourself. You're sovereign. You're all powerful. And yet you let us participate somehow in this thing that you do. And it, it's a tremendous source of, Of joy and satisfaction. It's the greatest joy. And so thank you for that. Father, by the power of your spirit, give us the capacity to respond to the invitation you've given us. And by your grace, allow us to share in the riches and the blessing of the values of your kingdom moving forward. Amen.